Mark was reminding me that uh, my title is supposed to be God's Mount McKinley. <laughs> and there's a reason I chose that. I really, I, I guess the subtitle to that is uh, Gaining the Spiritual Heights. And uh, I, I titled it after Romans chapter 8. And with, with some small miracle, we'll reach Romans chapter 8 by the end of this chapter and maybe get a significant way into it. Because in truth, there, are no, there is no higher spiritual peak in the New Testament than Romans chapter 8. Uh, it is, uh, beyond a doubt, uh, I think, the high point of spiritual life and spirituality in the whole New Testament. There are places in the book of Ephesians that compare to it. It's sort of like the mountains of spirituality, the high mountains of spirituality in, in the book of Ephesians. But Romans 8 is certainly, certainly carries you up into the heavenlies. But we have to be down in the valley for a little while before we get to Romans 8. So let's dive into Romans 7. Remember, the, uh, the last verse of, 20, of uh, 6 is verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. I've always thought, when I thought about that verse, I said, that's really bad. I mean, here you serve the devil all your life, and he pulls out a 44 and blows you away at the end. You know, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law. So that would have to be Jewish people who knew and understood the law. But, and I don't have time to chase this rabbit, I'm just going to mention, I'll name the rabbit. <laughs> the rabbit is law right here, and there's a lot that needs to be said about law. And I think that the book of Romans reveals some very deep things about law that are very important. Uh, to give you a quick analogy, uh, you, you've got this beautiful community here. If someday you don't codify the way the community functions, within about two or three generations, the community will dissipate. Uh, there are places in the state of Ohio, I know one of them is called Zoe, was the name of the community, but there's a bunch of communities, of old communities back when the old Quakers and groups like the Quakers, sort of the Anabaptist groups and so forth, set up these sort of idealistic communities and about 150 or 200 years ago in the state of Ohio. Well, probably most of them 150 to 180 years ago. But anyway, now the buildings are still there, but the community's gone. And you, I've been, I've visited a couple of them, and you read on the walls how, what they did, and I thought, man, this was so neat. I just wish we still had this today. It was, it sounded like the ideal human community. But the only way we can keep human society functioning is to codify it. That's why we have so many laws in the United States. It, there, somehow, there has to be agreements, uh, codes of law, Something has to be put down, has to be some type of uh, government within that community, or it dissipates. It won't keep itself alive. It's just the way God created things. God is a God of law and order, but he is also a God of grace and life. You see, those things are not contradictory. There is a way to synergize those to what appear to be totally separate concepts. Thus you find in the church canons, those canons, some of them are absolutely essential to the life of the church. Some of them are not so essential. Some are outdated. But uh, the canons are essential for the life of the church. Now, we have to have law, and we have to have order, but we have to have grace, and we have to have life. And those two can be synergized. There's a lot I'd like to say about it, but don't have time. So Paul says, Do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Now this is the Old Testament law. This is the Mosaic law that, they, that uh, Paul has in mind. 
Now he's changing from a man to a woman. So you've got to keep up with Paul here. He suddenly stops talking about a man, starts talking about a woman. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law of her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. And you say, boy, that's a tough statement, and it's really hard to reconcile that with the way life happens in our, in our daily life. I mean, we all have family members and loved ones that, and maybe many of you have gone through this, where a, a divorce has occurred, and that living former spouse is still out there. And then God brings the right person into your life. I know of a lady who went through a divorce and it was just uh, wrenching and heartbreaking. She'd married an Orthodox man, but they couldn't make it and then they divorced. And then later God brought another man into her life and he wasn't even Orthodox when they married but is today a very devout Orthodox and is a tremendous blessing to the family. He's the best stepfather I've ever seen. So how do, how do we reconcile all this? Well, let's talk about this thing of what it is to be an adulterer or an adulteress in this case. What, what is the word, what does the word adulterate mean? Uh, those of you who are chemists uh, and so forth, if you take a glass of absolutely pure distilled water in a sterile container, and it's as pure as you can humanly get it, how do you adulterate it? What do you do to adulterate that absolutely pure water? It's simple. You know. What? Put anything in it. Besides water. All you have to do is drop something in it. You can put a little salt in it. You can put a stick in it. You can put some dirt in it. You can put all kinds of things in that water and it adulterates the water. It ceases to be what it was originally. You see, it was pure water. Now it is water with something in it that keeps it from being pure water. Under the law of marriage, when a, a, a man and a woman are joined together in matrimony, and we in the church believe it's a sacrament blessed by the grace of God in a unique way, but the sacrament of marriage has been with us since the beginning of time, from Adam and Eve. God joined them together in marriage. In the law of marriage, as long as these two live together in harmony, at least as much as human beings can live together in harmony, then they live within the boundaries of the law of marriage. When impurity begins to come into the hearts of one or both of them, my old Baptist preacher taught me some things that are still very applicable today. And one of the things he taught me was, he says, you know, Gordon, he says, when you counsel, when I'd become a young Baptist preacher boy, when you counsel with people, a couple that are having marriage problems, always remember this, there's three sides, his side, her side, and the right side. And I have found that to be a hundred percent true. I have yet to find it to differ. Now, it may be she's 80% right and he's 20% wrong, although I haven't found that ratio yet, I don't think. But, you know, the point is, there's no case where one is 100% right and the other is 100% wrong. It's his side, her side, and the right side, usually. And so, when this happens, things start coming apart in the relationship, and they start shattering, and they pull apart. And then finally a divorce occurs. Then, then as in the uh, illustration, a real life illustration I used a moment ago, I didn't identify the persons, but let's say the right person comes along 
these two people marry. And now this wife has finally got a husband that she is able to be compatible with, and he with her, and the two of them are living in, in bliss that, that, they had not, that she had not experienced before. But the reality is she's still got a living husband that she is divorced from. And every time the two of them have to deal with the problem about the kids, it's hell. <laughs> you know, the old, their life, that part of her marriage is adulterated. It, she can never be 100% totally happy with her new husband because she's still got that former husband that she has to relate to. You just can't escape that. It's not escape. And so in that sense, the marriage is adulterated. Now, how do you deal with it? You deal with it through confession and, and the grace of God. That's the only answer. You go to the priest for confession. You've talked to your former husband on the phone, and he's driving you completely up the wall, and you're as angry as you can be. You go to the priest. You confess it. He prays for you. God heals you. You experience forgiveness, you get bathed in the grace of God again, and you go on living a joyous Christian life together with your new husband or if wife, depending on the situation. But you see, the adultery is not some sexual sin. Sex is the expression of unity between a husband and wife. But it's far more than sex that keeps a couple together. It is a mystical union. The scriptures teach us this. The marriage ceremony speaks of it as a mystical union, and there's no way to describe it other than a mystical union. There is a mystery about marriage that's not humanly explainable. And so, adultery is not just committing some sexual sin. It's in the sexual union that the unity between husband and wife is most fully and completely expressed because even sex is a mystery. It's not just a biological act. I used to have these college students, you know, you'd go speak in these fraternities and get some of them converted and then you'd try to go talk to them about Christ and the spiritual life and the Christian life and I'm telling you it was like pulling something out of a cesspool to deal with them. I remember one guy insisted that I come to his room to talk to him, and I found out later why, because he wanted to see me squirm, because literally every inch of his walls and every inch of his ceiling were plastered with Playboy centerfolds. There was not a square inch of uncovered space in that room. And I was trying to think of some place to look besides at the walls or the ceiling. I'm trying to look him in the eye, and he was just sitting there smiling because he was having fun with me. You know, there's, there, there are lots of these guys that just get totally immersed in a sensuous way of thinking. I had one fellow come to me and say to me, my mind has become a cesspool. He says, I can't think about anything but sex. And he says, I try to go to class, and I can't think. I try to take an exam, and I can't think. And he says, I feel tortured by this. I am tormented by this. You see, he, he had allowed himself to be dragged into to take something beautiful and something good, and it became impure and dirty and destructive in his life. There's nothing sinful about sex. It is a beautiful creation of God. And I love something I saw that the other day in St. John Chrysostom's commentary even spoke about the union between a husband and wife as being that sort of a perfect human experience on earth. Uh, and he wasn't married. He was a very chaste monk who lived a very holy life, but he had a lot of spiritual insights about, about marriage, and he wrote a book on marriage. You ought to read it sometime. It's amazing how God can speak through a celibate month and say so many wonderful things about marriage. But the, the union between husband and wife is not just sexual. The sexual relationship is the most full and complete expression of that union, but there is so much more to it. It is a mystical union. Therefore, when a divorce takes place and a remarriage then is subsequent to that, 
there can still be a full and complete union between this second marriage, in this second marriage, but there is the constant nagging of this other person out here that you have to relate to because usually there are children involved. Even in some cases where there are no children involved, there is still the memories. There are still sometimes property issues that have to be settled and all of those kinds of things. And so there is an adulteration of that union with your new partner. In the case of death, it's usually not that way. There's something mystical even about that, that though you still love that person you were married to, and I've watched this happen over and over as I've been a pastor most of my adult life, I've seen couples when, the, when one member, one, one of the partners dies, there is a kind of, it, their, their relationship enters into a, a heavenly realm then, and they always think of the best about the person who's died, you know. They may have battled it out with them while they were still alive, but after they died, they still, about all they remember are the good things. They have to think hard to remember some of the bad things that went on in the marriage because God has elevated that and sort of lifted that out of this life into the heavenly realm. And now they're in a sense free if they're still young enough to and there's a good reason to, to find another partner and marry because they have been freed from the law of marriage by death. And there is a freedom where death has occurred of a partner to enter into marriage that is not there where, when that partner is still alive and a divorce has occurred. I hope what I'm saying makes sense and isn't confusing to you. I believe that's what Paul has in mind. <clears throat> so he's saying the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband, and the husband is too, of course, uh, for as long as he lives. The reason he uses woman here, he's got a purpose in mind. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law so that she's no adulteress, although she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, now we're going to change gears again. You also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who, who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Now, let's try to figure out Paul's analogy. He first started talking to brethren, then he starts talking about a woman who's married and under the bondage of the law of, uh, of marriage, if her husband, if she's fortunate enough for him to die and get out of the way, he's been one of these unbearable creeps, then she's free to marry somebody better. If he's been an unbearable creep and all she does is divorce him, she still, he still hangs around and torments her. So I think Paul's analogy is this, that what what has happened to this lady is, if the woman in these two verses is, she dies. She dies. And once she's dead, she's free from this creep. But she rises again, and she gets to marry a new groom who is all that the old husband was not. This new husband helps her where the other one would not help. This new husband loves her, is gracious to her, is kind to her, is tender. This new husband is everything she ever hoped for. But the only way she could get to marry him is she had to die. <laughs> it's a tough way, you know, you got to die to get to marry the new man, but you have to rise from the dead too. Now, to fulfill the analogy, of course, we get to die to the old man, you see, to the old way of life. And we are separated now from Adam, who is the old husband. We have been raised with Christ and be married, and we're called the bride of Christ now. If some of you ladies think it's tough for so many analogies in the scripture to apply to men, and it's always talking about 
he and him and so forth. Think about how hard it is for us men and think about being a bride. Well, but we are. We, are we, we become the bride of Christ. All of us together. The church is his bride. And now we have died to the old husband who dominated our life in a harsh, terrible sort of way. And we have been raised to be married to a new husband who will give us all the grace we need to be a joyful bride to this new husband. And that's what the analogy is here, I think. <laughs> this is as best I've been able to figure this one out. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, now we've got to walk down in the valley here with St. Paul. When we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law. I don't care what kind of law it is, the law of sin and death, as we're going to find out. The law says don't do that. You know, the minute the law says don't do that, that's what we want to do. Uh, go on a diet, says you can't eat chocolate. What is it you want chocolate every day? You know, I mean, it doesn't matter what kind of law it is. It works that way in our life. For the law, for, for the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So we learned all of that in Romans 6, of course. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So now we are married to the new groom, see. We have been raised with Christ to live the newness of life. We're not bound by that old life that was energized to sin, be even more sinful by the law. The law of God, the laws of life, doesn't matter what the law is we're talking about here. So we've been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? No, the, the law of God is not sin. In fact, no law is sin in and of itself. Uh, canon law, it's good. It helps us keep the order within the church. Community law, civil law, all these laws keep things in order. God wants things done decently in order and in order. And so law is not sinful. Law is not evil. That's not the problem. What shall we then say? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Again, he uses that idiomatic expression, which means how could you think such a stupid thought? I mean, if you were to sort of try to get it literally translated, but you can't literally translate these kinds of expressions. Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. Law is good. The law shows me what a creep I really am. I cannot live up to the law, no matter how hard I try. Go through the Big Ten, and if you really look at them from the point of view of Jesus teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, you've broken them all. Go through any of the other laws in the Old Testament, you look at them carefully, we have broken them all. At one, in one way or another, we've broken them all. By the way, uh, Father, I, I forgot to announce, but we've got these prayers that Tom had copied for us. These prayers, uh, brief confession before Father Confessors, and I'll lay them right here, and you feel free to take them. Uh, they're good to use in your own private prayers, but they work best if you go to the priest and pray them. <laughs> and and they're, they're set up that way in the prayer. But I'll tell you, it's a powerful, powerful prayer. And uh, one that's worthwhile keeping in your prayer book. At any rate, we... That's the only way we can deal with these, these sins that keep popping up and catch us. They blindside us, catch us when we're not looking. And so, <clears throat> so he says, For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet. 
That, by the way, is the Tenth Commandment, and Paul is sort of summarizing the Tenth Commandment. The word basically is you shall not lust or desire after anything. And goodness, our whole body is made up of nothing but desires. Oh, I wish I had a new car. Oh, I wish I could get rid of this suit and buy a new one. I wish I had a new pair of shoes. I wish I had a new house. I wish I had... And, it, and in this, in this uh, confession, it's the, we confess acquisitiveness. It means to always want something to acquire, I just need to get something else and I'll be happy. And our, our whole American economy is based on the sin of lust and desire. You just got to have this one more thing that they advertise on television or you're not going to be happy. And that's the way life is. So Paul says, I didn't even know about lusting or covetousness until I read the Tenth Commandment, which says, you shall not covet. But sin, uh, let's look at this, sin taking opportunity by the commandment. This is verse 8 of chapter 7. Sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead or inoperative. Sin wasn't active until the law Revived it. I mentioned a while ago. You put yourself on a diet, and I don't care what it is you're you're dieting from. You just feel like for a while you gotta have it. Just can't get by without it, especially if it's chocolate. I found out two three years ago I'm allergic to chocolate. I I didn't know what it was that caused me the problems because I love chocolate. I told my daughter-in-law, and she's a chocoholic, she says, that would be a fate worse than death for me. <laughs> she, she just, you know, she was horrified when I told her that, and she makes the best chocolate desserts I've ever seen. But anyway, it's, it's off my list now, as much as I love it. So sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, Produced in me all manner of evil desire, for apart from the law, sin was dead or inoperative. I was alive once without the law. I think this is Paul's personal spiritual, his autobiography. And I think this, this sentence, this one sentence, refers to a brief time after his conversion. Remember, he'd been a Pharisee. He was a man of the law when he got converted. He knew the Jewish law better than you and I will ever know it. He knew it word for word. He'd memorized it. He could quote it. And after he met Christ, he was so free. He was free as a bird and filled with joy and everything was wonderful. And he wasn't under the law anymore. But, he says, when the commandment came, all of a sudden, I realized, ah, I can't lie, I can't cheat, can't steal, can't do these things. All of a sudden, the law came back on, came rushing back into his life. And when the commandment came, uh, I lost my sense. Uh, okay, I was, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Paul said, all of a sudden, I was back in bondage again. He's, he says, as a Christian, I think this is my interpretation of this, but I'm not the only one that interprets it that way. Uh, so the commandment came alive to him. He knew that he needed to love his brothers. Uh, Christ says we are to love one another. We're to love our enemies. You know that until the time of Jesus Christ, the concept of loving your enemy, as far as I know, was nowhere in human literature. Christ taught us to love our enemies. The Jewish view of loving was it's okay to love your neighbors, love your relatives, love your friends, love everybody, but you don't love your enemies. <laughs> Read those Psalms about what you do with your enemies. All kinds of uh, pretty nasty things uh, we do to enemies, you see. But Jesus said, love your enemies. This is revolutionary in human thought. Love our enemies. Love 
those people that flew those planes into the buildings on 9-11, I'm going to tell you, that's been a test for me. I, I, and I've, most of the time, I've flunked that test. When I see those replays of that event on television sometimes, I just get so mad I can't stand it. This is the end of side one. I have to turn the TV off and get up and go away. It breaks my heart for the families and all the people who've suffered so as a result of that. It's really hard to love our enemies, folks. But I want to tell you, I don't care how justified we feel in being angry with them. The fact is we are supposed to love our enemies. That's what the gospel of Christ teaches. It's the greatest test we'll ever face is to love our enemies. If you've had to go through a divorce, that spouse that's broken away from you maybe has treated you horribly and done very wicked things. How can you love that person and pray for that person? Well, I think praying for them is the secret. You start praying for them first. And if you keep praying for them long enough, you'll be able somehow to love them in some way. You may not want to go up and say, hi, buddy, I, I've been wanting to see you and have a nice uh, gentle conversation. You may have to stay away from that person for quite a while. I, I mean, I would not be too prone to want to have a nice cup of, a cup of coffee and a nice conversation with this fellow, Mosali. I'm sorry. I just don't think I'd do well at that. But I need to pray for him. I need to pray for my enemies. We need to pray for those Al-Qaeda people because even if they do want to blow us up and destroy us, we still have to pray for our enemies. The church has always done that. Look at the martyrs. They were praying for the very people that put them to death. Look at our Lord Jesus Christ. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he was talking about the very men who had nailed him to that cross. I, I'm, most of the time I'm nowhere near that, that level of spiritual life. But at least I know it's out there. And that's what we're supposed to be and do. So the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Sin slipped up on my blind side. And the very commandment that says, Thou shalt love thy neighbor, or thou shalt love thine enemy, clobbers me over the head and kills me, because I can't do it. I try, but I can't, and I keep failing, and I just have to keep praying. We have to fall down and get up and fall down and get up. We have this Saturday morning men's group I've mentioned several times, and I love it when I'm there. And one of the nicknames that one of the men has given to this group is the Bloody Knees group. <laughs> we fall down and get up. We fall down and get up. And, and I like that, you know, because that's probably what we all are, really. We're members of the Bloody Knees group. And Paul says, sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. That's not the problem. It's not the law that's the problem, but sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. We need to see how really rotten we are, and we have to really see how bad the law of sin is in my members that is constantly trying to use my mind, my tongue, my eyes, anything you can think of to commit sin, to act out in a sinful way. That sin might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. Oh, now we're getting down to where I lived. Paul is giving his autobiography further. 
What I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that is, I choose to do something, that I do not practice. I am going to get up this morning and pray. And then when the alarm, or tomorrow morning, let's say, and the alarm goes off, we hit the snooze button. And by the time you get out of bed, it's too late to pray. You've got to do your best to get dressed and get out and meet that first appointment or go to work or whatever it is you have to do or get the kids off to school or whatever. How many times have you resolved in your heart you were going to do something like that? Ah, uh, tomorrow I'll start on my diet. Ah, <laughs> uh, tomorrow I'm going to do this or that. And it's always manana, but manana never gets here because of the weakness of the flesh. And so Paul says, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. You ever find that true of yourself? The things you hate, things you hate in other people, you look inside, you see yourself doing them all the time. People gossip and you can't stand gossip and then the next thing you know, you're gossiping about somebody. And, and you can just go down the line, pick it up. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. That is, that the law is good. The law says don't do that. Don't commit adultery. Don't lust. Don't covet. And I still do it anyway. And then what happens? I have to recognize that the law was right. I'm the one that's wrong. But now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. Skip Wilson, or Flip Wilson used to say, the devil made me do it. Well, there's a lot of truth in that. There is a, a power operative in me that is at work. So it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that, that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. See, that's the law of sin operational in my body. It's the body dominated by sin. The flesh is not evil. The flesh is weak. That's the problem. Jesus said that. The flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, he said, but the flesh is weak. And this body of mine, dominated by the law of sin, is so prone to do the wrong thing. Now, so I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells, for it will... To will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. I cannot figure out how to do it right. And I keep thinking, one day I'm going to get this straight. You know, I'll get it all figured out and I'll be able to make it through 24 hours doing the right thing. So far I don't know that I've ever had 24 hours of doing the right thing. But it would be sure great if we could, wouldn't it? For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Does that sound familiar to any of you? <laughs> I see lots of shaking heads, nodding heads. Now, if I do what I will not to do, what I choose not to do, what I by an act of my will, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Sin's my problem. It's not really my flesh, even though the flesh is weak. I find then a law that evil is present with me. Aha, we have another law. I never have really exactly tried to count up all the laws that Paul refers to in the book of Romans, uh, but there are a number of them. There's the law of the, of the flesh, the law of sin, the law of the mind, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, the law of Moses, the law of God. I mean, there's so many different uses for the word law, and I was using it yesterday for, I think it also refers to any revelation from God is a law. And so I find in a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God, according to the inward mind. And it is true, don't we? Every Christian wants to do what's right. I've never met a Christian who did not want to do the right thing down deep in their soul. 
They want to do the right thing. It's just that we feel so incapable of doing it. So he says, I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, uh, my members being my hands, my eyes, my, my, my mind, my brain, my ears, my nose, my mouth, my hand, whatever, my feet. I, I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind. And you see, down inside there is the law of conscience. There is a conscience that God has given us in our mind that all of us have. And so all these things are at war with the law of my mind, which is my conscience, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And so the wars between the law of sin and death and the law of my mind and the law, uh, and the, law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, which is the Holy Spirit who works consistently so much so that it can be called the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And so I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am. Anybody feel kinship with that cry? <laughs> oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from the body of death? Some have said that Paul is using a, a very awful analogy here, and I think there's certain truth to this. You know, one of the worst uh, punishments that the Romans, the Romans were masters of torture and terror. And one of the worst punishments they ever devised was that if you committed a murder, they would tie you face to face limb to limb with the body of the person you had murdered. And then you were left to be tied to that person until the corruption in their body, as they, their body decayed, seeped into your body. And it's a horrible way to die. And uh, there, there are records in the Roman history of the way of them having done this on a fairly regular basis. It was a very awful punishment for an awful crime. And it seems that Paul is using this, this same kind of an analogy here. He's saying, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I want to be free from it. I thank God. Now we find the answer in verse 29. Here's the answer. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the solution. It is through Jesus Christ our Lord that we are set free. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of sin, but with the flesh the law. I'm sorry, with the law of, uh, with my mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. So with the flesh I keep serving that old law of sin, but in my mind and my heart I'm trying to serve the law of God. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I goof up over and over and over and over, but there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what he says, period. I know some, uh, I think it's the old King James, adds, a, adds something that's in some of the uh, manuscripts. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And it's true uh, that I, I'm not, I don't quibble with that part of the verse. But the reality is there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We are not condemned anymore, but we, our responsibility is to walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now remember I said the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is the law of the Holy Spirit working in me. And the Holy Spirit works so consistently that he can be spoken of as the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. He always will be consistent in his work in my life. 
And so I'm made free by the work of the Holy Spirit from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, that is the law of God, the Ten Commandments here, in that it was weak through the flesh, the flesh is weak, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And so he sets me free, you see, from the law of sin and death by joining me into union with Jesus Christ and beginning the work of the Holy Spirit within me. And so all of Romans 8 is the chapter on the work of the Holy Spirit within our lives. So he says in verse 4 that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. And I am convinced that there have been many saints, and if you get to know the lives of some of these saints, you'll find they lived basically a perfect life. Many of them had finally risen above the passions and the weaknesses of the flesh. Uh, saint Mary of Egypt was the most remarkable saint, and she had lived a very uh, sinful life, and the only reason she went to Jerusalem was she happened to see a boat being loaded, uh, people boarding a, a boat in Alexandria. She was a prostitute in Alexandria, and she saw all these people getting on, and there were a group of nice-looking young men getting on board. So she decided, well, I think I'll board that boat too. She buys a ticket, gets on, and goes up the coast from Alexandria, gets off at Joppa with all these pilgrims that are on their way to a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Well, she hears him talking about Christ. She'd heard about Christ. She was not ignorant of who Christ was, but she'd lived pretty much a sinful life and totally apart from Christ and the church. Got to get to Jerusalem. She decided she, they're all going into the church of the Holy Sepulchre to venerate the empty tomb, and also Golgotha is there, and so you can venerate the cross or the place where the cross was. And in both places, and because this huge church covers both spots. And when she tried to enter, something stopped her. She tried again, and it was this invisible wall that would not let her go in. And finally, in, she knew what it was, and in great humility, she began to weep. And I may not have exact details of the story, but... Uh, as I recall, the Theotokos, the Virgin Mary, appeared to her, instructed her to go out into the wilderness. And she took just a loaf of bread and a, and a, a, a wine skin of water, filled with water instead of wine. She goes out into that Judean desert. And I've been there several times, and I know how raw and rough that desert is. I don't know how... Anybody that would survive 24 hours there, much less as long as she did. And God provided for her in supernatural ways. And by the time that, uh, so, uh, what was the priest who found her? Sosimus, Sosimus, yes, found her. She was a saint already, a living saint. <laughs> when, when, he, when he went the second time, he got to the Jordan River, and she walked across the water to him, you see. And, uh, and he took the Eucharist to her, as, as she had asked him to do. And when she died, she, he buried her there in the sands of the desert. What, what a tremendous... And she had written instructions in the sand before she laid down to die. What a life of holiness she had to had come to experience. It is possible in this life to live a perfect life. I'm convinced of that. I believe God actually intended that for our human bodies and minds and souls, to live a perfect life even on this earth, not just in heaven. But for most of us, we're going to have to wait till the other side to really conquer the sin and death that is constantly grabbing at us and trying to pull us down. And so, St. Paul says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds 
on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Carnal mind is the mind that is under the law of sin and death. Uh, it is that mind that's set on the flesh all the time, in the ways of the flesh. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Praise God for that. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. We've been chrismated. The gift of the Holy Spirit has been imparted to us. We have him living in us. And as far as God is concerned, we're not living in the flesh anymore. As far as our daily life is concerned, we still are. And the goal of the Christian life is to become what we already are in Christ. That's the goal of the Christian life. Just to keep striving to become what we already are in Christ. And so you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. So, pretty, pretty clear. It's pretty black and white here. Either I have the spirit of Christ dwelling in me, or I don't. And if I don't, I'm in big trouble. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. This physical body cannot, the flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven, Paul said. We've got to die. We've got to lay this body down so that we can fully inherit the kingdom of heaven. So if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So one day we will have a resurrection body. We will have the same kind of body that Jesus Christ had when he came out of the tomb. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh. You don't owe the flesh any time. We've all logged enough flesh time. We're not debtors to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. It's that simple. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And you know, it's by the Holy Spirit we can put to death the deeds of this body. We don't want to do it, but the Holy Spirit will help us to do it. I remember many years ago when we lived in Crowley, Texas, and I was pastor of First Baptist Church of Crowley, and uh, was in seminary at the time, and we had been given this beautiful collie pup and it was my my daughter had been had had polio and was at home recuperating and we were so happy that somebody gave us this beautiful collie pup for her to be able to play with and then one day to our great dismay we heard the a car hit the pup and it, it had broken uh, legs or back or whatever it didn't die it was it was still alive but it was severely injured I didn't know what to do with that puppy. And uh, there was a man in our community who was not a medical doctor, but he was uh, a, a pharmacist, as I recall, and he had a, he had a, a, a ranch, and he, had, he worked with animals all the time. So his name was White. I went out to see Mr. White. I had this beautiful pup in a, a big cardboard box, and I took it in my arms to him, and I said, let him look at the dog, and the puppy was just looking up with his big brown eyes and couldn't get up because something was broken, either its back or both hind legs, I don't know which, and he kind of felt of it. He said, there's nothing we can do. And, you know, nowadays probably they do surgery and all these kind of things and put pins in, but they didn't do that kind of thing back then. I didn't have any money anyway. I couldn't have afforded it. He said, you're going to have to put it to sleep. And I tell you, I looked down in the eyes of those puppy, that puppy, and I could not say yes. I, I looked, and I looked at him, and I think, you sure there's nothing? We talk, I said, is there nothing we 
I mean, maybe, maybe you can bandage it up. Maybe we could put a cast on her or something. No, he says, there's nothing we can do. He says, I'll tell you what. He says, I'll do it for you. All you have to do is just say the word. And I'm holding this box in my arms. And all I had to do was say, okay, you do it for me. And I didn't want to say, you do it for me. But finally I had to because I knew that I could not do it and I could not take care of that puppy's needs. And I finally said, then you do it for me. And he says, I'll put it to death. And he did and he buried it. But you see, it was my decision. And I think many times we're like that. We struggle with the Holy Spirit says, if you'll let me, I'll take care of this sin that's in your life. I'll take care of this this evil desire that keeps plaguing you and plaguing you and plaguing you. This demonic activity that's been going on or this harassment by the demons or whatever it is. I will take care of it, but you have to say the word. You've got to be the one that gives it to me and let me deal with it. And it can be terribly painful and almost beyond our ability to say yes. But I believe that Paul is telling us here that if by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body, we shall live. All right, but if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we're debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. But if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. The prerogative you have as a child of God is to be led by the Spirit of God. You have the right to ask the Holy Spirit to lead you. You have that right. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. I was on an. Um, uh, um, I was in Jerusalem years ago, and I'd gotten uh, uh, into an elevator, and there was a, a Jewish fellow who had his little boy in his arms, and the little boy was patting him on the shoulder, saying "Abba, Abba, Abba, Abba," and and of course, uh, our you'll find that same word used by our Arab brothers in our Antiochian Archdiocese. They talk about Abba. The little kids, I've heard kids calling, Abba, 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 you know. And it came to me then what a significant thing this is that Paul would say this. You know, until the time Jesus came, a Jew would never speak to God as Abba, Father. Because God's name was so holy that they would not even write it out. The Hebrew word we translate Yahweh, Actually, what they did is put a yod, a little <laughs> comma-like mark, and then leave a blank space. Because, and for a long time, the name was almost, the spelling was almost lost because for many centuries, it was never spelled out. They had to find some old manuscripts to see how they really spelled it out because the word was too holy to be written. The name for God was too holy even to be uttered except in greatest reverence. And Jesus came along and he would pray in front of his apostles. You read the Gospels, you'll find I'm right on this. And he would say, Abba, Father. Papa, Daddy, Father. Now, I find it hard to use that uh, colloquial expression, Papa or Daddy. I know some Christians do that. But that's what Jesus prayed. His intimacy with his heavenly father was so close that he could do that. And the disciples learned that. And Paul says that the Holy Spirit gives us, takes away the spirit of fear, and bondage of fear, and we receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with the Spirit, with our spirit, that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, 
that we may also be glorified together. We'll stop with that verse, but think about it. Think about it. If you're a child of God, you're an heir of God and joint heirs with Christ and everything Christ inherits, you're going to inherit. In the name of the Father, the Son.